For several weeks now, with Matthew's story of Jesus serving as our guide, we have been thinking about Jesus' absence and his coming again. We imagined the weight, you remember a couple of weeks ago, the weight being like the weight of bridesmaids looking for the bridegroom so they can light his way into the wedding party, keeping lamps trimmed and burning. And suddenly the bridegroom appears and those with oil in their lamps enter the wedding party, the kingdom of God. Or we imagine servants working in the world with the talents the master has entrusted to them, waiting and working, and suddenly the master returns for an accounting. Those who have fearlessly invested and doubled the master's money are invited to enter into the joy of the kingdom of God. In each of these stories, Jesus is absent but he is coming. His coming will be, as Jesus says here in Matthew, like a thief in the night. You do not know the day or the hour. As Jesus says at the end of that parable of the bridesmaids, therefore, keep awake. Keep awake. Someone came out of the service last week and said, I'm glad you're preaching these parables because I don't like them one bit. And I'm hoping you're going to be able to help me to like them. The fact that he was saying that on his way out of the service let me know that it was still an unattained hope for him, and there was work yet to do. And for several weeks now, because we've been in these parables of Matthew, I've had that same conversation with a number of you about how uncomfortable these parables make you feel. Some of them are violent. You remember the one about the king who takes revenge for the murder of his son by burning down the entire city of the murderers. And the parables inevitably end in Matthew with the world neatly divided, perhaps too neatly, between wise and foolish, between good and faithful servants who double their talents and wicked and lazy servant who buries his in the ground, between those who enter into the wedding party, into the joy of their master, and those who, by now you should be able to say it right along with me, are thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so you've been letting me know, in one way or another, some of you just say you've never liked the parables, these parables, and you just don't read them. Some of you are trying to square your sense of, the, of, uh, your, of this division between black and white, good and evil, in and out, with other places in other Gospels and even in this Gospel where Jesus preaches radical inclusion. And with your own experience of a world where good and evil, light and dark are shrouded in much more ambiguity and areas of gray than these texts seem to allow. 
One of our high school students spoke with me on a Sunday evening about that parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. The student wanted to know why, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, why if our relationship is based on the grace of God shown to us in Jesus, why does he in effect shut the doors on those five bridesmaids without enough oil and not allow them that second chance? That's a good question, I told the student, which is what you do to stall when you're stumped on something you say. That's a really, really, really good question. And we talked it out, and when it was over, the student said I had given a solid answer, which made my whole month. But ever since, the question has remained for me, and I suspect for some of you as well. What do we do with our understanding of grace, with our experience of living in a world of deep ambiguity, where we know that we ourselves are a mixture of good and bad, and these stories including the one we hear today, which seems to take grace completely out of the equation and makes it all a matter of what we do or what we don't do. Our works. You know, that's a really, really, really good question. Because here we are again, one final time in Matthew the parable or the vision that sums up all of these other parables that have been leading us to this one. Sheep on the right hand, goats on the left. Here we are again with one group marching into the kingdom and another group heading not just to the outer darkness, but now even ramped up higher, eternal fire, eternal punishment. I have to tell you, it's tempting to dismiss this text as a Presbyterian. Too much works, too little grace. It's tempting to dismiss a number of these parables. But there's one image that keeps me from doing it, among others. I started to use this image yesterday on Facebook in my weekly post talking about Sunday's worship, but I thought it might be too disturbing. It shows a a Syrian boy. He looks to be about six years old. He's reaching out his arm to take something. And his arm, when you look at it, it's nothing more than skin wrapped tightly around bone, like a stick. The article accompanying the photo reports that Syrian children are beginning now to starve to death at an alarming rate that they've been reduced now to eating grass. I remembered that first winter we went to Lesbos, Greece, and we saw boats coming across those treacherous and freezing waters, the threat of drowning or dying of exposure being so very real. And we would ask each other and we would ask the people with whom we worked, why are these men and women and children and babies so many infants? Why are they taking this tremendous risk? And the answer always came back. What they are fleeing is far worse 
than anything they might face on the journey. Far worse. The image of that little boy is why this text, and frankly, all the other texts in Matthew that speak of Jesus returning and establishing the kingdom of God cannot be dismissed, no matter how troubling they are to hear, as troubling as that photo is to see. Because up until now, we have been dealing with Jesus' absence, with his coming again. Now suddenly, in the text that these parables have all been leading to, we are confronted with his presence. Where is Christ? In the emaciated face of a Syrian child. In the bloodshot eyes of a homeless man on lower broad. In the eyes of a woman who hears every night the prison doors locked behind her. In the migrant farm worker who puts his family of seven to bed in a trailer made for two. In the sick and the suffering and the dying. Jesus is present in these and more because in the end, the proclamation is that God cares. God cares about the world. God loves the world. And God is present to us, gives God's very self to us, as Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew, among the meek and the peacemakers and the grieving and the poor in spirit and the persecuted. We cannot, we must not dismiss these words. In them is the hope of the world. Imagine Matthew's hearers as it is revealed to them that this Jesus they've been waiting, waiting, waiting for through all of these pages of parables has actually been present all along, incognito, present to us as close as the face of the vulnerable other. The one we celebrate today as the king on this last Sunday of the Christian year is a king who does not dwell in celestial splendor, but in the broken and the marginalized and the forgotten. He is present in the world and present to us every day if we have eyes to see. However, as with all of Jesus' stories, one must read carefully, listen carefully, or we might miss some important nuances. We may be tempted, for instance, to rush out of here and sign up for as many service projects as we can, put our name on all of the second Saturday sign-up lists, commit to going off to Greece or out to Virginia, take a truckload of supplies to Houston for hurricane relief, and on and on. And all of this would be a wonderful thing, and I hope you will. I hope we all will heed the call to serve others. But let us pay attention to motive. Let us pay attention to the reason we do what we do. Notice in this parable, no one knew Jesus was present in the other. No one. Those on the right and the left are surprised to hear 
that their service to or their neglect of others was service or neglect of Christ. They were simply living their lives day to day, living from some center in their souls that either compelled them to offer a cup of water to the thirsty or to withhold, compelled them to offer bread to the hungry or to turn away. I'm sure the ones who lived those neglectful lives might be tempted to say, Lord, if we had only known all along that that was you and not just some guy on the street, we would have acted. But it seems to me the whole point of the parable is the not knowing. Not knowing it is Christ. Serving from some other motive. So if that was not the motive, the overriding question of this parable is, what was it? Someone came to visit during the week a few years ago and noticed our room in the end board in Wilson Hall. At the top of the room at the end board at that time was this passage, a portion of it. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. My guest, who I was showing around the building, looked at it and said, I wonder what the room in the inn guests think about that in relation to themselves. What do you mean, I asked. Well, he said, do you think they could draw the conclusion that the only reason you're doing this for them is to make sure you get in the sheep group and not the goat group? I said, that's absolutely not our motive, as if I knew everybody in the room's motive. And I declared it with a bit too much defensiveness. He said, I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm asking what you think it feels like to them. I said, I've got a meeting. I was not at all happy with the way this conversation was going. I said, I need to show you the rest of the building so I can get to my meeting. But you know, that's the kind of conversation that doesn't ever really leave you. And I've turned it over a lot in the years since. It strikes, I think, at the heart of this text. What I didn't want to admit to him was what came flooding over me in that moment was all the ways I can still think of everything I do and we do as us and them. What we do for them. How they are the least, which I guess means I'm the most. How so much of my service can come either from a place of guilt or worse, religiosity. Trying to make sure I serve my way into the sheep group. The invitation of this text is, I think, to be able to see myself more clearly as God sees me and to see the other, not as other, but as my brother, my sister, my child, God's beloved, It is this belovedness that unites us as one human family. 
And this should be why we serve, because we love. No other motive needed. Because we love. This calls for our work, not just on the outside, building houses, providing relief, but also work on the inside. It calls for prayer and honest self-reflection and a stripping away of the illusion of division so that we can recognize we are one with God and one with all of God's children. When I can come at my service from this kind of place, I see all my own broken places, the ways I am least. And this compels me to see, to really see the other, not as other, but as family. The text today is an invitation to this kind of seeing. And this kind of seeing is nothing short than the hope of the world and the kingdom of God. May it be so. Amen.